listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lnbc.us. Link is in the show notes. I'm glad you all survived Thanksgiving. Um, it's a weird day. I didn't eat breakfast. I ate lunch, and I didn't even eat seconds, but I was so full after that I hurt. Does anybody, did anybody else do that? Yeah, like three gluttons in here, and I'm one. <laughs> this is terrible. Next, next year, I'm not even going to eat Thanksgiving dinner, so I can stand with some sense of honor and dignity before you. Um, yeah, it was miserable. I didn't want to eat again until... The next day. Some of you, though, maybe you were off work, traveling, uh, doing whatever you were doing, um, caught a story. I'll just tell you, too, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. We'll finish chapter 8 this morning uh, with a large section, verses 26 through 56, that fit well together. But some of you may have uh, caught on the news, as I did this week, uh, the somewhat dramatic rescue of a family of five uh, in Colorado. They were a Chicago family that were visiting relatives in Colorado, and they decided they wanted to go on a hike, and they hiked uh, the Greenhorn Trail, Greenhorn Mountains there. Uh, And it starts out, I did a little research on this, starts out at 7,460 feet and rises over the next 7.8 miles, almost eight miles, uh, to the summit around 11,300 feet. And for those of you who can do math quickly, that's an increase over nearly eight miles of 3,800 80 feet, right? So um, they get up there and they realize as the sun begins to set and they're at the summit that they are not going to be able to make their way back down. They were fatigued and tired. Um, They had no food with them. They had little water left and their clothing was inadequate. So they did uh, what so few people seem to do in time. They just immediately called 911. Um, and said, and I'm, I'm thinking too, like of all the places I can't get cell tower, and I'm like, you're, you're, you're on a mountain range in Colorado at 11,000 feet, and you're able to call 911. Uh, good for you. So they called, let them know where they were, gave them their exact location, told them their, their situation. Um, and as the sun was setting, the, the rescue operation launched. Uh, they uh, sent out a team actually of, of volunteers who work with the Pueblo County Sheriff's Department search and rescue team. Um, they airlifted them to a certain point on the trail, and then they hiked the rest of the way up, uh, found the family, followed their GPS uh, coordinates that they'd taken from their phones, um, began to warm them up, gave them something to eat, gave them something to drink, some extra uh, clothing, and began to hike them back down. I love that, that they didn't airlift them off. No way, suckers. We're not paying for that. You walked up here, you're walking down. <laughs> County spent enough, and we saved costs by getting volunteers, right? Um, but they walked them down about halfway. They were met by uh, members of the county fire department, and they helped care for them and hiked them all the way down. But it was interesting and dramatic to me thinking about uh, the text this morning and the rescuing power of God that is available to us in Christ um, who are in far more need of rescue in every way possible as human beings than this family simply was a physical rescue on that mountain. 
and how rarely we call on God and receive the power that is available to us, both to us as Christ followers and the continuing sanctifying need of our lives. Um, Any of you who've been Christians for any amount of time know that it's not like God saves you, God redeems you, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, and then all is well in your life from that point on. That's, That's not how it works. We need God's continual rescuing power in our lives in all kinds of different ways. And certainly those of you who sit here this morning or are watching online um, who have never bowed your knee to God, who never in your soul have repented of your sins and given yourselves fully to Jesus Christ in faith and received the redeeming grace of God in every way possible, your greatest and most desperate need this morning is the redeeming, rescuing power of God in your lives. We're going to see three things from this text this morning, directly from the text that uh, the rescuing power of God manifests itself in Jesus in three ways. And the fact that Jesus delivers, and some of you need deliverance this morning from something in your life. Jesus heals. He heals. God's power to heal us physically didn't stop in the first century. Some of us need not only physical healing, we need emotional healing. We may need mental healing. All of us are in need of spiritual healing. We're going to see that ultimately Jesus restores. He restores life to those who belong to him. And he restores ultimately eternal life to those who are his. Let's begin with a with a really interesting encounter that Jesus has with a man. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Jesus uh, and the disciples got in a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. They encountered a dramatic storm that threatened their lives. Jesus calmed the storm. They get out on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and this is where we pick up the story in verse 26 of Luke chapter 8. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. Now, let me stop there and let me pause there and say, what Jesus has done has moved from Jewish territory, home territory, to Gentile territory, a place where Jews did not go. Uh, this, this was the away team. Uh, they didn't go there. This was a place of darkness uh, to Jews, a place of pagan worship, a place of impurity, a place of rampant superstition. It it was how Texans feel when they cross the state line into Louisiana. (laughs) You feel a cloud of darkness envelop your vehicle that you hope you can outrun and eventually make it out the other side into Mississippi. They didn't go there. They didn't go there. It was impure. The people who were there were not worshipers of Yahweh, of the one true God. You'll see in a minute, it's the place where pigs dwell. They did not dwell in Jewish lands. Verse 27 tells us that when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. So this was a man who'd grown up in the town where they came ashore, but he wasn't in the town. The text continues to explain, for a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house. 
Sounds like some of your relatives having just come from Thanksgiving, doesn't it? You always have that one, and if you don't, just not enough of your family has shown up. Or always, perhaps, you are that one. But it lived in the tombs. It's what we would think of as a cemetery, but these uh, tombs in first century Palestine uh, were carved into the sides of mountains and the stone there. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. So you've got a demon-possessed man, and the demons greet Jesus through on the agency of this poor man as the son of the most high God, which was a, a common Gentile phrase, a common pagan phrase. Jews didn't need to clarify the most high God because there was simply God, Yahweh, one. And you'll also notice it's, it's interesting here. If you look back at verse 25 um, in your Bibles, if you have them open or maybe on the app, or you just remember after Jesus calms the storm, after Jesus calms the storm, the disciples look at one another in fear and amazement, the text tells us. And they ask, who is this? If you'll notice, the demons lack um, none of the confusion. They experience none of the confusion that the disciples had about Jesus' identity. The demons know exactly who Jesus is. They are well aware of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We find that in James chapter 2, verse 19, where James is speaking to those who say, I, I do believe in God, I do uh, have faith in God, yet their lives do not live in obedience. There's no works there, there's no fruit there that gives evidence to what they say. And he said, you believe that there is one God, good. Even demons believe that and shudder. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is uh, in practice what James is teaching us, that even the demons believe and shudder. Now listen to this. Verse 29 tells us again that Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times, many times, it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. I want to just remind you this morning in our advanced, so-called so advanced Western context, that uh, the demonic is real. The realm of evil and evil spirits and the satanic and the demonic is a very real thing in our world. Very real thing in our world. And it's not something you and I should dance around with or play around with. It's very real. We lose sight of that, and I, I hope... Uh, by the end of this section of scripture, at least, uh, there will be in your mind a very much a reality that this is a, a real thing that happens in our world, though unseen. It's something like love. You cannot see love, but you can see the effects of love, right? You can't see gravity, but you can experience the effects of gravity. It is the same with the realm of the demonic. 
Jesus asks this man, rather the, the demon speaking through him, what is your name? What is your name? And in a reply that has become almost infamous down through the ages, both in and outside of the church, legion is his reply, legion, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them into the abyss. This, uh, this place, uh, the book of Revelation tells us of eternal judgment for the demonic, for the evil, for those who stand opposed to God. With, you've got to counterbalance this, this understanding of the reality that, that the demonic exists, evil exists. A power that is outside of and other than human beings exists in opposition to God, to the people of God, and to the purposes of God in our world. You've got to balance that with the reality that the demonic holds no power over Christ. No power over Christ. It is a reality we acknowledge and we don't flirt with. Those are the enemies of God. And yet, we don't fear we don't fear with the indwelling spirit of God in us. At the very name of Christ, they shudder. They beg and plead with Christ, knowing that any activity that the demonic does in our world, they do at the active or permissive permission of God. That is it. That is all the power they have. And they know, as they confess here, that their ultimate destruction is assured. Don't cast us into the abyss using the very word used in the written word of God itself for that place of eternal judgment where they know they are headed, right? So, so you don't fear this. Maybe you've got a neighbor who says their, their house is haunted. I would get a bag of popcorn, go in there, snack as I went, experience it. If they're serious about this, have prayer in there. Command whatever may be unsettling your neighbor and your friends in the name of Christ to be gone and move on about your business. But it's funny, we tend to completely ignore this or get really, really weird about it. Um, and you guys know people that fit in both those categories. It's like the book of Revelation. We ignore it or generally get really, really weird about it. Um, this is how we do with this idea of human possession of the demonic, but it's very clear in scripture that this happens. And those around the world in developing countries still give quite vivid and real testimony and witness to this. And were you and I willing to go and to be more missionally involved uh, in where most of the greatest and most powerful gospel work of God and his spirit is on display, we would experience some of this as well. Verse 32 begins to get really interesting. And some of you, you pig lovers, you've been waiting to know what about the pigs? Because we live in a really wacky time when it comes to animals. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Not something you would have seen in Judea. Not something you would have seen in Galilee in a Jewish area. But they're there, and you can just see the disciples too. They're like, ooh, a lot of pigs here, Jesus. A lot of pigs. A demon-possessed guy we know, but a lot of pigs. <laughs> the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, 
and he gave them permission. One of the things you've got to do, and I found myself wrestling with it this week, is when it comes to a passage or a text like this, you simply have to stick with what Scripture gives us and be at peace with what it doesn't give us. We don't know why a lot of what's about to happen happens. We don't why know why the demons don't just ask permission to go somewhere else. Lord, could we just leave him and maybe go to another city? A lot of people there we could inhabit. We don't know why they need to go somewhere, first of all, why they ask to go into the pigs, why Jesus grants it. But they do ask, and he gives them permission, verse 32 says. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Perished is actually the word here. It's the, the same word that scripture uses over and over for our ultimate condition outside of Christ. It's the word uh, that, the same word that the disciples use that we translate drown um, when the storm is there. And they're so indignant that Jesus is sleeping instead of up helping them. The pigs run off the bank into the lake and drown. I can't help, I confess to you with my temperament personality to be tickled by this. I tried all week long uh, to, to visualize this and it not be humorous to me, and I just can't do it. So perhaps it's growing up in the, the environment I did and my background in a ranching family, but it, it just seems humorous to me. You know the disciples had to be astounded. They're like, what a show. We can't wait till we get back. The boys are not gonna believe it. You know, they've got their iPhones out. They're taking pictures. Um, they're posting online. The pigs run off and they drown. And what's important here, <coughs> I think in our day, is, is to remember and for us to be rooted deeply in a Christian worldview of creation and humanity. Uh, because we're getting very weird with animals these days. Like, I, I get pretending like they're children, they're not. We have both. I am anxiously awaiting um, the departure of one, whatever, while seeking to raise the other in an honorable way. You have five kids and a dog that sheds everywhere and then come talk to me. We also have people in our country that advocate for animals in, in a way that puts them in a place of promise above human beings. That is not where they exist. They're part of God's good creation, but the only part of God's creation uh, to which he imparts a soul or, or to which he makes a living soul are human beings. Human beings are the ones given stewardship and dominion over all of God's creation, including animals. That's the reason that Christians ought to be the best stewards of the environment that exists and to know why we are stewards of the environment. But when you hear the, the sort of usually liberal environmental lobby speak, they speak as if human beings are the bane of creation and it is the earth that is to be worshiped and held up. And that to the degree that human beings may, may cause problems in the world or among animals, the human beings should be done away with. But I hope as the people of God, as sensible, smart people, informed people with the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you would seek to be rooted deeply in a Christian worldview, both of creation and of humanity that puts human beings in their proper place, doing their proper stewarding of God's creation, but not over and above where it is. It just gets crazy. You can read now, you can Google the stuff. You can read of people 
um, uh, booking entire flights to fly an animal from here to there. Even cats. <laughs> right? It's just strange. And our poor dog who we love, who's been a fantastic dog, he knows, I sense it in his spirit, that if he gets some kind of significant illness, money will not be invested <laughs> on his healing. Right? He will be loved to his just reward. All right, I got to move on. Verse 34, you can send all emails to jake at lmbc.us. When those tending the pigs saw what happened, they ran off. I'd have run off too, right? I mean, they were gone. Demon-possessed people is one thing. Demon-possessed pigs are another. And I can tell you, because I showed pigs in high school. They're demon-possessed to start with. They ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet. You know if you're a student of the Bible that this uh, is a euphemism for discipleship. To whom much is granted by God, much is required. When God delivers us, he delivers us unto obedience and servanthood to him as an ambassador of his. And this is where this man was, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They were afraid partly because of what they had done to this man throughout his adult life. They were afraid because they knew he was beyond help. He was beyond deliverance from a human standpoint. And here was someone with a kind of power to do what human beings could not do. Now this man was delivered, fully clothed. In other words, he was restored back to human dignity and to human community with the ability to be part of a community. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them. Isn't that stunning? There's, there are some people, and I've watched this now for years as a pastor. There are some people who can watch a clear movement of God. And rather than being glad and having their affections for God stirred and having uh, their face lifted up to worship, rather than that, they want it to stop. They want that to go on somewhere else so that what goes on around them can maintain under their human control. And if you've been in church very long and you've been awake and paying attention, you've seen the same thing. They asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and he left. Isn't that astounding? Isn't that so backwards from what we want now? It took me years in ministry, years as a pastor, to stop trying to chase down every church member who decided they were leaving and going to another church. I was, for, I was uh, more focused on reclaiming Christians, at least professed Christians, who had decided for whatever reason they were going somewhere else than actually reaching those still in darkness, still lost in sin and shame. And it was actually looking at Jesus' ministry that finally set me free Biblically, not to mention Paul, Peter, and the rest of the apostles of the New Testament. Jesus never does this. 
He never pleads with people. He never begs with people to come back. He doesn't, he doesn't even explain to them what would be beneficial for him to stay. He doesn't even say, doesn't anyone else want to be healed? Are, are you kidding me? Don't you want to know the power of God behind this? He doesn't say anything. You notice that? He just gets in the boat and goes. Mark Devra, I heard him say regarding this this week, that Jesus granting their request was a form of passive judgment. And it absolutely was. It was the passive judgment of God resting on their heads. And it's a warning to all of us to be careful what we request of God. It's a, a, a simple picture of what we see in Romans 1. We're given witness to the power of God, the manifestation of God through the acts of Jesus. They don't want any more to do with it because they don't understand it and they can't control it. Can I just tell you, church, whenever God is on the move among his people, you can never fully understand it and you can never control it. Right? Churches can program and structure themselves for control, or they can program and structure themselves for growth and for the movement of the Spirit. But you cannot program and structure a church for both. Look at verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. Wouldn't you want to as well? The man who's just delivered you from years of what is to us unimaginable, almost uh, inexpressible pain and emotional and mental and physical chaos. The man who's just delivered you from that clothed you, returned your dignity to you, is getting in a boat and leaving. And he begs to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, and again, this is so strange to us. We're like, Jesus is a meanie, but he's not. He has a mission that the father has sent him on. And he knows that things are not only to be done in a certain way, but at a certain time. Jesus says, no, you can't go with me. But instead, verse 39, return home and tell how much God has done for you. Can I tell you, in a very real sense, that is one thing that God commands to all of us. Go, return home and tell how much God has done for you. When was the last time you told anyone Truly, any other person, how much God has done for you. And I'm not trying to throw guilt on you. Guilt is a terrible motivator. But I do want us to think about this. For a lot of us in here, I have no doubt, we'd say, I don't, I don't even remember. I don't remember the last time I told someone what God has done for me. If that's you this morning, would you just start here? Would you just commit to pray that God would give you an opportunity to do that? It is God's to arrange those interactions those engagements, and commit to him that if he will give you an opportunity, you will push through the fear or seeming awkwardness in the beginning, and you will just simply share with whoever God has put in your place all that God has done for you. I absolutely believe that if that is your prayer, God will honor that. God will grant that. And I want to hear about it when he does. If that's your prayer and your commitment to God this morning, man, let me know. I'm anxious to see how God uses that. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Can you imagine this guy walking down the street? Right, he starts to walk by you and you jump back in the house. Like, that guy's a freak. But he's healed. There's something different about him. He's different. 
His life has been changed. He's not only physically different, he's got a different countenance. He's got a different spirit. He's been changed by the grace of God. He's been delivered. Can I just tell you this morning that God is very much still in the business of delivering people? And I want to remind you that we may not live in a culture right now where we see a lot of demon-possessed people, but Satan and the realm of the demonic is still very much at work in the lives of non-believers. J.C. Ryle put it like this, and he says it very, very well. Satan still urges many in whose heart he reigns into self-dishonoring and self-destroying habits of life. You know anyone like that? He still rules many with a rod of iron. He goads them on from vice to vice and debauchery to debauchery. He drives them far from decent society and the influence of respectable friends. And some of you, as you grow closer to Christ, will realize that you will have some friends that are lost along the way because they cannot stay close to you and go from vice to vice and debauchery to debauchery. There's a conviction that Christ's presence in you brings. He plunges them into the lowest depths of wickedness. He makes them little better than self-murderers. He renders them as useless to society as if they were dead. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his autobiography of his own conversion experience, being very honest about who he was before conversion and very honest about his ongoing need for sanctification across his life. He, he said of his condition before his salvation, I was a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, and a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was legion. And God delivered him. God delivered him. David Garland, who um, I had the pleasure of having as my academic advisor in seminary, in his uh, commentary on this passage says, the problem uh, as we see it here and we, and we seek to, to live out the kind of, of spirit that we see in Jesus is that Christians might tend to avoid the dark haunts where these least and desperate people may gather. I can just tell you, Christians do avoid the dark haunts. Their scary behavior as a result of years of maltreatment at the hands of others and their own self-abuse may make them seem irredeemable. And so they never hear the message of salvation. Jesus is prepared not only to use anyone committed to him to proclaim the gospel, but is also ready to go anywhere to proclaim it. You know that this morning? Jesus all the time dealt with the least of these, the worst of these, the dirtiest. And he didn't become the least of these, the worst of these, or the dirty. His power and light infected them, not vice versa. Jesus delivers. Jesus also heals. Jesus also heals. Now, when Jesus returned, they've gotten the boat, they've gone back to Galilee. A crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet. See, we just read the story about a demoniac coming and falling at Jesus' feet. But what we realize as the story unfolds is the demons had, had no intention of actually worshiping Jesus. It was a show. All they wanted was to try and barter and bargain with him, not to destroy them. And we wonder if Jairus has real faith or not. Pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Some of you who've had children 
have had your children experience really significant and even life-threatening situations. And if you can put yourself in the place of Jairus, you know very well what's going on here. Jairus was esteemed. He was a, a leader in the synagogue. He was a man of stature and position in the community. But when it came time to help his dying daughter, all the esteem in the world, all the influence in the world, all the power, all the money, it didn't matter. So he seeks out Jesus. He falls at Jesus' feet and he pleads with him. As Jesus was on his way, in other words, Jesus has compassion on him. He says, let's, let's go see your daughter. The crowds almost crushed him. Crowds are an interesting thing. I, I let our youngest daughter, Karis, talk me into this week taking her to Old Navy at 5 a.m. I want to correct that. Being there at 5 a.m. when they opened on Friday for Black Friday because there were significant sales on clothing. And on the way, I was thinking to myself, and I might even have said to Karis, we're going to be the only idiots there at 5 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> we pulled in and there was a parking lot full of idiots already there, a whole line of them out front. And I sat there just astonished by this, astonished by this. Five in the morning, I told Karis, going in, get what we agreed on. I'm going to stay out here and nap to the glory of God. But I couldn't go to sleep because I kept watching people come in. And in our day, you don't just enter, you have to have internet proof. So I would literally, without pastoral exaggeration, watch people park out for, run right in front. We were on the, like the, the center parking area, right up to the doors, run all the way up there and then stop and take a selfie or two and then go in. And I've got to think on that more before it works its way into a message in any kind of significant way. But I have to figure out what's happening in us as human beings in the US. So uh, I'm going to think on that and maybe bring it to you at a, uh, a future time. But I stay out of the stores. I, I don't need any of that on uh, Black Friday or any other weird shopping day like that. So Jesus is here, and the crowds are just everywhere around him pushing in. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. So you've got Jairus' daughter who's 12 years old. You've got a woman who's had this a physical ailment and illness for 12 years as well. Luke is often fond of pairing a male and a female together, showing the quality of God's work and profound power of God in both men and women. What's interesting here is Luke leaves a little tidbit out that Mark puts in. At Mark's account, you know, I've turned there, I'll read it to you. Mark's account of this healing in uh, chapter five says the same thing and then adds a tidbit. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, is verse 25 of Mark 5. And then in verse 26, Mark says, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Any of you remember Luke's first century profession? Now he was a physician, a doctor. So Luke just chooses to, we'll just set that aside. Brother Mark's covering that because Peter couldn't keep his mouth shut. Right? So she had, looked for, she had looked for help everywhere that she knew to look for it. And had not only not gotten better, she had gotten worse. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, likely these little tassels that would be hanging down on the clothes 
of rabbis, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Immediately. There was immediately a transfer of overwhelming power and a change of the created order, the physical decay that was a result of sin, not of this woman's sin, but of the fracturing of sin into our world that brings death, despair, illness. Immediately, she's healed. Jesus says, who touched me? They're walking along, crowds are everywhere, and Jesus just stops and says, who touched me? He's looking, now, we can imagine that Jesus knows. Do you have that much imagination? If he can calm stores, uh, storms, I wish he could calm stores, he can. If he can calm storms with his words, if he can uh, resuscitate people, bring them back to life, he knows who touched him. He's not saying this for his own curiosity. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Peter is always firing off his mouth, right? I identify a lot with Peter. Peter always has mouth problems. He's like, come on, Jesus, you're acting weird right now, right? Everybody's touching you. Everybody knows that, and you've stopped, and everybody's quiet because everybody knows everybody was touching you. Jesus just... Just rolls on, but Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. So he's saying, I haven't just been touched. I've been touched by a hand of faith. And that hand of faith became a conduit for the healing power of God. And I know it. When the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. I imagine so. There was so much shame and so much separation and so much self-doubt and insecurity that this woman had become accustomed to living with. It took such courage for her to be even out here in this largely male crowd, though there would have been women and children likely there as well, and then pressing through and through and through and through to get up close enough to Jesus, to touch him. She'd exercised all the courage she had and had to have been still stunned that maybe her body trembled for a minute and she knew in her soul she'd been healed. But she'd also been caught. Caught in a way that she didn't want to be public right then. So trembling, she falls at his feet. You have a demoniac fall at Jesus' feet. You have Jairus the father a 12-year-old girl fall at Jesus' feet, and you have this woman who needs healing fall at Jesus' feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him. Just think about that. That had to be deeply embarrassing and humiliating to her. In front of this honor-shame culture, this extremely male-dominated culture, this woman in completely desperate need, completely dependent upon others for life, is telling her story publicly right there. She told why she had touched him and how she'd been instantly healed. When he said, then he said to her, daughter, daughter. Remember how Jesus redefines the primacy of family? that the most significant, the most significant family relationships you and I will ever have this side of eternity are our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Our primary family, our nuclear family, is extremely important. Given by God, created by God. Created as the the bedrock, the foundation for societies. And yet, not given the place of primacy. The only place in all the Gospels where Jesus addresses another woman as daughter. He does it here in a very compassionate, very tender way. And in a way that would have demonstrated to everyone here that something more than just a physical healing had happened. Something more than just a physical healing had happened. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Now, her peace was not the cause of her healing, but the channel of it. You and I can have all the faith in the world, and we can't cause God to do anything. We cannot manipulate the creator and sustainer of the universe. But faith is the channel through which the power of God flows, and without it, We can do nothing and expect nothing from God, and we ask whatever we ask of God in complete, vain effort. Her faith was the channel that positioned her to receive the healing of God and the restoration of her soul to God, as Jesus now calls her daughter. Daughter. The kind of faith she displayed in the person and work of Jesus had not only led to physical healing but to spiritual redemption. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. A little tactless. To be honest, this would probably have been me had I not been thinking. This is not the way Jake, our executive pastor, would have delivered the news. This is the way me, a D on the disc, would have delivered the news. Your girl's gone. Leave him alone now. Rather curt and direct, don't you think? Can you imagine if you're Jairus in that moment? He'd been standing there probably both anxious and hopeful, anxious at the delay that this woman's encounter with Jesus was taking, but also hopeful as he saw the healing power of God flow through Jesus. Hearing this, hearing what the messenger from the house of Jairus says To him, Jesus actually responds. And he says to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. And she will be healed. Don't be be afraid, just believe. In other words, there's this moment where Jairus has to decide whether he wants to continue on with Jesus and trust him or give up. Some of you this morning, if you hear nothing else this morning, you're in a place right now where you need to hear the voice of God say to you, do not be afraid. Just believe. Just believe. Choose to trust me in this situation. Choose to have faith in me in this situation and not look at all the circumstances around you. Have faith. Don't be afraid. Just believe. One of the things you and I've got to understand, there's mystery and tension um, here that we just can't resolve, is that God's sovereignty over all things does not make human beings into Autobots. Jairus has a real decision here. Will he continue with Jesus or will he not? Will he choose not to be afraid and to believe or will he lean into fear and disbelieve now? Say, well, she's dead now. What can you do? Verse 51, they continue. 
When he arrives at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter. Isn't that gracious of the Lord? He lets big mouth Peter, who almost always gets it wrong initially. But his passion for Jesus is so high. You know, sometimes Jesus had to go to sleep at night just shaking his head and giggling at Peter. Like remembering the day and go, man, what a work I've got on my hands with this one. But he loves me. Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. In other words, Jesus is not about a show. Jesus is not here to dance for the crowd. Jesus is not here to perform for all the people who want to see him do something miraculous. Verse 52, meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Uh, All the people wailing and mourning was a picture of professional mourners, right? The ones you would hire. They would have heard that Jairus' daughter had died. He was a synagogue leader, an elder, a man of influence and affluence, and on they would have come to pay respects and make a dollar or two. Professional whalers, you still see professional whalers in many places in the continent of Africa and around uh, the Southeast Asia and in parts of Latin America. Professional whalers come, and they're mourning. And then Jesus says, stop wailing. She's not dead but asleep. It's really strong language here. It's almost that Jesus is annoyed by this professional sort of show that's going on. And he just says, knock it off, button it up. She's not dead, but asleep. Here's the crazy thing. She is in fact dead. Jesus isn't using sleep as a, as a euphemism or a symbol here, or what he'd be saying was, she is not dead, but dead. So there's something going on here that I'll be honest, I can't fully unpack for you or figure out other than Jesus in his sovereign will and absolute right is defining what he wants them to know and what he doesn't want them to know at this time. Knock it off. She's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him knowing that she was dead. One of the reasons you see that they're professional mourners, they could go from mourning to laughing instantly. Just whatever the occasion calls for. I would have been a terrible professional mourner. Oh, woe is you. Oh, it would not have been a profession I excelled at. Professional laugher, I would have gotten wealthy at. So they flip on a dime here. They go from wailing to laughing at him, knowing that she was dead. The text is very clear here that the girl has died. Professional mourners knew dead people. They saw dead people with the regularity uh, that you and I see uh, celebrities in rehab. They, I mean, every day, every day, I shouldn't have said that, I guess. Um, Every day, death was a part of their culture. Verse 53, they laugh at him knowing she's dead. Verse 54, but he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Very, very gentle word from Jesus. Jesus knew when to be extremely stern and strong and had no problem being that. And he knew when to be incredibly tender and compassionate and delighted in being that, my child, get up. It's a very, this is a is very domestic wording in Greek. It's the same way that a mother would wake up a little child in the morning, wake up, sweetie, it's time to get up. Just very gentle, no commands, Lazarus, come forth. None of that is needed. He just comes in and in the intimacy of this room with weeping parents, Peter, James, and John there, he simply says, get up, sweetie. And her spirit returned. Her spirit 
returned. Her spirit that had exited her body, not in a platonic way, where the spirit's now liberated to be free from the dirty brokenness that is our body, but in a way that is biblical, where the spirit exits the body but will return among the believing and unbelieving at the time of resurrection for a final judgment. Her spirit had left her body, and her spirit returns. At the, at the word of Jesus, death gives up its captives. The girl is dead. But at the command of Jesus, death has to release her. Her spirit returns. This happens because Jesus doesn't just deliver and doesn't just heal. Jesus restores in every way that you and I need restoration, in every way that a world so deeply broken and wounded by sin needs restoration, Jesus restores. He restores spiritual life to you at the moment of redemption and grows that as he restores godliness and the image of God, which you were meant to live out and, and to reflect perfectly across your years and one day ultimately restores that life to you, never, ever, ever to be taken again. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Isn't that a great, earthy, basic way for Jesus to respond? Never forget that God cares about the smallest details of your life as a human being. God became a human being. Jesus felt hunger. Jesus knows that the human body is built to function both from spiritual nourishment and physical nourishment. He also knows that as she eats, it dawns on them, something truly miraculous has happened. She is alive again. She is alive again. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. He said, look, don't do a podcast about this. Don't go on Oprah. Don't write a book about it. Don't go on Good Morning America. Don't tell anyone what had happened. Can you imagine how difficult that would be? For some of you who are deep introverts, you're like, that's just another day for me. I don't tell anybody anything. I don't even know my wife's middle name. And she doesn't know mine. Last thing I said to her was I do. I'm just kidding. If that's, <laughs> that's you, we need to meet after this and get you some counseling. <laughs> Acts 3.21, Peter talks about the restoration of all things that is to come in God's own time. In Revelation 21.5, Jesus says, he is indeed making all things new. Not just saving people, but bringing about the renewal and the restoration of all things. I wonder this morning where you are in relation to what we just encountered in God's word. Maybe like the demoniac, you're in desperate need this morning, maybe in a way that no one but you knows of God's deliverance in an area of your life over something that has such a grip on you, you cannot Get away from it, apart from the intervention of God. We saw that the demoniac was not just 
delivered from the grip of the demons, but restored as a disciple of Jesus and then commissioned as a missionary to go and tell his story. There are all kinds of things, friends, that grip our lives. From shame and insecurity to a whole growing list of addictions that we can't get past to scars from early in life that continue to drive our behavior. Maybe you're like the woman who'd been ill for years and unable to engage in normal social relationships and life. Normal friendships. And you need to be healed from some desperate condition that no matter who else you've gone to, they have been unable to help. Maybe it's plagued you for years, like the woman. It may be physical. God can still do this. Do you believe God can still do this? God can still do this. God does still do this in ways that baffle medical doctors and surgeons who can say it was there on the last scan, it is completely gone this time. We have no medical explanation for it. Can God do it? Absolutely. Does he always do it? No, he doesn't. That's part of why the great call of the Christian life is to love and worship God rather than the stuff God grants. To say, no matter what, I will worship you. I trust you. Even if you don't. But why not ask? Why not fall on your knees before God and plead with him for deliverance? Maybe physically, maybe emotionally. Certainly, spiritually for healing. And all of us, all of us in here, to one degree or another, are like Jairus' daughter. We're in need, immediate and eternal need of being restored to God and to others. Some of us are are in great need in that process of being restored even to ourselves, of understanding ourselves in a healthy way. As the band makes their way back out here and begins to uh, prepare to lead us in a time of response and reflection, I hope and pray that you see yourself somewhere in this narrative this morning because all of us are to one degree or another. We need God to work in our lives. We need God to work in our relationships. We need God to work in places of our soul that we can't seem to find healing. We need God to work in our lives in places where we need to be rescued like that family of five. We need deliverance as bad as God's people needed deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And we need a deliverer to come and to rescue us. If that's you this morning, I just encourage you to take it to the Lord. Take it to the Lord. He is good. He is kind. He is compassionate. And maybe as you do, you'll be like Jairus and you won't understand the process. Guarantee you, he didn't understand the process. Jesus takes time to address this woman who'd already been healed. Listen to Peter. And then his daughter dies. And then Jesus says, that's okay. That's no biggie for me. Let's keep walking. Don't be afraid. Just believe. 
maybe you will take it to God, but you're going to experience confusion about the process on the other side. Remember, Jairus, when you do. And remember that God works in ways that we don't understand. In just a minute, I'm going to pray. And as I do, our offering ushers will make their way to their positions. When I finish, they'll pass the buckets. You guys can drop in your connection cards this morning, share prayer requests with us, share commitments you feel led by God to make, next steps to take. If you give on Sunday morning as opposed to online throughout the week or by text, you can drop in your giving envelope as well. Do your business with God this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's nothing out of your reach. There's nothing beyond your healing power, beyond your delivering power, beyond your power to restore and renew. God, there's nothing that in light of the cross can stand in our lives in opposition to you. So this morning, God, I pray. I pray specifically for those who are about to give. God, for those who've given throughout the week, Lord, increase their trust and their faith in you. God, grow them as believers as they trust in you and they make their trust and worship of you known in tangible ways of obedience by giving back to you that which is rightfully yours and even beyond in generosity and sacrifice. May every single dollar be used to advance your kingdom. God, I pray for those who are wrestling this morning uh, with things unknown to those sitting around them. That, Father, they would take it to you without fear and with belief, knowing that you are the God who delivers, who heals, and who restores. Move among us now, sovereign spirit, I pray. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.